welcome back to the show. It's great that you could join me once again. I hope you're enjoying the last few days of summer and getting ready for Labor Day. Speaking of Labor Day, this is the time of year when many young people um, are returning to schools and universities across the country. And again, we're in the midst of a raging debate about masking and vaccine mandates, especially for universities in Canada. The fact that there's no uniform policy is sparking a controversy. For example, the three major post-secondary institutions in the Ottawa area, the University of Ottawa, Algonquin College, and Carleton University suspended their vaccine and mask mandates this past summer and remain suspended as the fall term approaches. This has caused faculty and student unions at these places to protest uh, the university administration as apparently their leadership seems to prefer to live under mandates, although it's not clear what the rank and file membership thinks about it, or for that matter, what the students think. Meanwhile, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the university, um, your, your Western University, insisting on at least three doses for students and faculty returning to campus. This is even though Ontario's Chief Med- Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Karen Moore, is not necessarily in favor of booster doses for younger people especially young men who have a higher risk of myocarditis and likely don't need the booster given that they're young and healthy. To make sense of all of this and more, I have a superb guest with me today. Uh, Dr. Neil Rao is an infectious diseases specialist and medical microbiologist, uh, assistant professor at the University of Toronto and works at Halton Healthcare in Oakville. So without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Rao to the show. Hey, Neil, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Um, so I've told our viewers about the controversy over mask and vaccine mandates, um, especially now with Western University taking this extreme step of insisting on boosters. Um, is it just the university being extra cautious or is it simply refusing to move past the pandemic and remain in this constant state of emergency? Uh, and, you know, what's even more bizarre, Neil, is that they've exempted visitors and service personnel from the mandates. So apparently the science is different for a big donor or a visiting sports team or for your local delivery guy. Uh, and it's different for students and faculty. Um, also, I, I noted that faculty and student unions at some schools in Canada uh, that sensibly got rid of the mandates a few months ago uh, from back in the summer. And now they want them back. Uh, what do you make of all of this? You know, this is awfully confusing, uh, not just for the students, but even for the public at large. And we have many similar confusing scenarios I can recount to you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go on a Via Rail train, you have to wear a mask. But if you take a GO train or a commuter train, you don't. Or a tourist train, you don't. If you are unvaccinated and you arrive in Canada, you have to do quarantine. But if you're vaccinated, you don't. If you're unvaccinated, you should be tested if you come from uh, abroad. But if you're vaccinated, you know, you're tested at random. Um, we have so many contradictions like this that, of course, now add universities to it. And moreover, the Western University appealed to the higher authority of the Ivy League schools in the U.S., citing that other Ivy League schools are doing something crazy. Therefore, we should follow them and do the same thing. So no wonder they're confused. If an august organization like, say, Brown University or Harvard University chooses to do it, why shouldn't we do it? They must be right. We must be wrong. So the problem with any form of a vaccine passport system or a vaccine mandate is that there's an assumption that those who are vaccinated 
are somehow less contagious, less infectious than those who are not vaccinated. That premise is being destroyed day by day, variant by variant. So originally there was this lovely data, late 2020, which suggested we had the silver bullet, our exit of the pandemic, that if we vaccinated everyone and achieved, remember, herd immunity, we would stop this in its tracks. Mm -hmm. It's not true. We didn't know about the variants. We didn't know about waning immunity, that immunity would fall over time following vaccination. We didn't know that after three doses of the Pfizer vaccine, four months later, your vaccine protection against these circulating Omicron screens is not 10 or 15 or 20%, it's zero. It's 20% at two months and it's zero at four months. So no one knew this when these policies came up, but the policies lagged the science. And once that freight train of these policies, these mandates, this virtue signaling, shaming those terrible unvaccinated people, teaching them a damn lesson for their bad behavior, spanking them, if you will, once that started, it couldn't stop itself. And we went around and we caused mayhem and there's no acknowledgement of the error there's no silent discussion. Maybe we should cut back on this. Maybe we should just pull it away. Maybe we can secretly, quietly get rid of those vaccine mandates that are leading to some staffing challenges in hospitals, for example. Like maybe it's time to rethink this. That's what hasn't happened. And wow, when universities go backwards like this, am I ever glad those students are speaking up? Triple vaccinated students, no less. Like myself, I'm triple vaccinated and once infected at least by Omicron. Uh, same here. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, before we taped a couple of days ago when we, you and I were chatting about doing the show, I remember you saying something very interesting that uh, the protests happening at Western University are a protest by the vaccinated. So it's it's sort of the mirror image of uh, what happened with the truckers protests. Uh, but, you know, but having said that, the truckers protest, uh, you know, was not a protest by the unvaccinated. You know, having spoken to many of the, the people who showed up to protest, including the truckers, many of them were actually vaccinated. They just um, um, were protesting because they didn't think these mandates served any purpose. And, uh, you know, they were taking a principal position on it. Um, so it's it's fascinating how, um, you know, that that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that what the students at Western University are taking a stand on this. I mean, it's time that people started speaking up. It, it absolutely is ridiculous that, uh, um, you know, what is the scientific rationale behind the booster, uh, especially for those who are uh, young? Um, uh, yeah, I'm shaking my head with this. I mean, some people yeah. kindly said it's a personal choice. Yeah. Uh, you know, at least just at least let's talk about this from an informed consent perspective. That's what some people who spoke at the protest said, some physicians mm -hmm. who spoke at the protest said. But the other comment I would make is what's the medical value? When you do something, you have to look at the number to treat, the number of vaccines I need to give to prevent a hospital admission, to prevent a death. Once you're dealing with someone who is under 50, mm -hmm. if they've had two doses of vaccine, that third dose of vaccine doesn't add much. It's not like stepping on the gas pedal. The harder you step, the car goes faster. Sometimes the car is going as fast as it's going to go. You don't get more by beating the horse harder sometimes. Like that's what this is becoming. And then the other point is many people were addressing with a third dose of vaccine have been infected with Omicron. That was their booster. It was waiting for you at the LCBO, not the antigen <laughs> kit, the disease. You know, this is, this is the hilariousness of it. So it's just, you, you know, that we, we've never acknowledged natural infection in the equation. And that is a game changer. The political science analysis I'm going to give you as well with regards to Western is it's not a bunch of people who had so-called Confederate flags on the front of their trucks. 
These are students who are educated, who are triple vaxxed, and they are the voting constituency for the government in power for the most part. This is their target audience. A 30-year-old or 25-year-old female arts graduate or arts student is likely to vote liberal or NDP. And they have pissed off that subgroup of voters. They've blown it this time as a government in power if this is what they allow. Now, this is a university promoting this, but if the governments in power don't speak out against this, they might actually lose voters. So they have to think about the implications because if this type of policy comes from upon high, not just from universities, but from governments in power, you won't see it from the Ford government, I don't think, but if you saw it from other provincial governments being promoted, I think they'd be running roughshod against their own votership. Yeah, yeah, I think I think uh, this is going to become a political issue. Um, it, 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 you know, it's it's probably it's already a political issue at this point, but I think uh, it's good that these students are speaking up. Uh, I want to touch upon this um, something you mentioned earlier. You know, since the advent of Omicron and its subvariants, uh, we know that COVID has become um, much less severe. It's highly transmissible, um, and uh, even the booster shots, um, as you said don't really do much at preventing transmission at this point. Um, first of all, would it be fair to say that from a layman's perspective, COVID-19 is morphing into something like the seasonal flu that we've been living with forever? Uh, and with the seasonal flu, as you know, taking the flu shot was always voluntary um, and no one put a gun to your head Um so, I mean, f- first of all, would, would it be fair to say that it's basically evolved uh, into something like the seasonal flu? So what you're getting at is what we call an endemic approach is it appropriate right. rather than a pandemic approach. Mm-hmm. I think so. I don't think everyone's ready to get off the horse yet. It depends who you ask. Okay. Yeah. And that's where you're going to see a divergence between experts. But one thing I can say is, as you said earlier, Omicron is not causing the health impact that the original Wuhan strain, COVID classic, as I call it, did. The other point is you've got an immunologically experienced population. Initially, we were so-called immunologically naive. Nobody had seen the vaccine. Nobody had seen the disease. Now we have large numbers of people who have seen the disease, who've been vaccinated, who got the disease, then who were forced to get vaccinated or got the vaccine, whatever might have happened. So you've got this hybrid mix or pure vaccinated or pure unvaccinated but infected. And there's a very small percentage of people who are unvaccinated who can still be hit hard even by Omicron and end up in hospital, to be fair. I'm not sure the severity of the disease has changed, but I think the population at risk has changed. So with infectious diseases, we look at three things. We look at the host, we look at the environment, and we look at the virus, the triangle, the epidemiologic triangle. If the virus hasn't changed, one thing that has changed is the host, the host situation, the immune status of the host. The environment, we learn more about where it spreads. We don't have to have people crying on TV because we're having outdoor parties at Trinity Bellwoods Park anymore. We had stories like a, a doctor going on TV crying because people were outside in May of 2020. I don't think we need that anymore. There's no need to cry. We don't need people to mask outside, although some people like to do it to show how how amazing they are to other people. This is a talisman. This is not really a personal protective measure anymore in that setting. Now, we do know that people, if they want to, can go ahead and wear a mask. They can even wear an F95 mask. FN95 mask if they want. That's great. They can also wear it as they walk into a restaurant and promptly take it off as they eat and they can feel protected. This is the kind of folly that I see. We see people getting on airplanes with masks and taking it off as as soon as they 
The plane's at cruising altitude and the flight attendant shows up with a coffee. It all comes off. So why are we doing this? So if we're going to keep doing things, we have to be selective. Asking university students to do this on a campus to me is just, it's just pure folly. Wrong population, not the best intervention if they're wearing just a surgical mask. In the wrong era of COVID-19, where we have an immune experienced population, either through vaccination or disease. So it's a triple, triple fail, in my view. Yeah, I mean, speaking of people who refuse to get off the horse, uh, you know, you have countries who have that have more or less fully moved on and aren't having these debates of what way we're in and what the wastewater signal is telling us. Um, I always thought that uh, we as Canadians uh, tend tended to be pragmatic about, uh, but what we what I see is a state of um, what. I can only call COVID psychosis at this point, um, where especially many public health experts and doctors whose voices get amplified by uh, the mainstream media, they simply don't want to let go. Uh, Meanwhile, you have um, courageous experts and doctors like yourself uh, who don't share the so-called consensus uh, view and you're criticized and vilified and ridiculed. Um, this, this seems like a very unhealthy state of affairs and, and does a lot of damage, in my opinion, to public health messaging in the end and instills fear. Um, I, I still fee- uh, meet people who are triple vaccinated, triple masked. They live in a state of perpetual fear. Um, what do you make make of all of this? How did we end up in this mess? And where do we go from here? So some of this started even before COVID. I'm going to kind of walk through, you mentioned flu. We had campaigns, let's get flu-less, you know? So there was a vision that if we all got the flu shot, we could stop this disease. It's not true. I've written in the Globe and Mail a number of years ago that we were taking the flu shot too seriously. This is well before COVID. We haven't managed our expectations. We are trying to create a belief that what happened with measles where the vaccine actually stopped transmission would apply to other respiratory viruses, including influenza and COVID-19. It just isn't the case. If you don't manage expectations and you keep going with this view that you can stop something in its tracks, that you can stop the wind, as people describe trying to stop the flu, uh, in, in terms of its impossibility, this is what you get. The other thing is there's a cultural dislike, disdain, for the so-called anti-vaxxer. And I have been labeled an anti-vaxxer for questioning the idea of going on and on with a carousel of boosters to quote one of your prior phrases, the carousel <laughs> of boosters. Because this, this, this is where it, it doesn't stop. And I, I think it's like a movement. It's much easier for me to go on mainstream media or media and just say, get the shot at your best defense. It's a bromide. Who's going to question a bromide like that? If I say, listen, there's a certain group of my older patients who would benefit from a fourth booster or a third booster, at least a third booster. And maybe we should wait for a new vaccine to give a fourth booster or wait, maybe if they've already just had Omicron or had COVID in the last three or six months, we can take pause. We don't have to hammer them with another vaccine. When I make those comments, someone will turn around and say, that's an imprudent, irresponsible view. I am morphing into the anti-vaxxer league. And that label is terrible. That's a terrible label to have. So this is why you see people backing off private emails to you, to other journalists, to myself, people reaching out, chat groups forming, where people don't want to speak out publicly, except for a few of us. But the insanity has reached a level now where young students who are triple vaxxed are saying, what the hell is going on? And rightly so. 
Yeah. So that's the turning point. The Western University protest is the turning point. I'm surprised it wasn't bigger, but if it happens at multiple universities or if they have a second round of this with more uptake, you never know. Or maybe it'll come up during the political campaign. And that would be bad news for the governing party. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, speaking of young people, Neil, um, you know, there's there's a growing conses- consensus, uh, at least from my reading of the situation, especially for men under 40, I believe, uh, that there's a greater risk of getting myocarditis from the vaccine than from COVID-19. Uh, what do you make of this? Do you share this emerging consensus? I share that consensus, and this is why I think we have to be cautious about boosters. I'm not saying it was wrong to give one or two doses in the pandemic fog of war. Fine. But I think when you start pushing boosters, and when we have this evidence of a waning immunity, that basically it's like a short top-up. It's like having a gas-guzzling car, and you're going to fill up the tank all the time. You can't, you never, you can't drive more than a certain kilometers before you top up again. When you have this type of, of a practice developing, and you apply it to people who are at low risk of bad outcomes from the disease, a rare outcome of myocarditis, heart inflammation, starts to become an appreciable concern. Do the benefits outweigh the risks or vice versa in that subpopulation? Again, these questions can't be openly discussed. I think there's a tendency not to discuss these adverse effects. You even hear the line that the disease causes myocarditis more than the vaccine. But the point is that the, the their people can also get the disease anyway with the vaccine or without the vaccine. We know that the vaccine efficacy is not 80 or 90 or hundred percent. After a while, you're at the same risk anyway. So what that argument doesn't hold water anymore. You know, in the early phases with earlier variants, there was better data about at least some vaccine efficacy, meaning stopping infection, not preventing bad outcomes. The bad outcomes part, we've already gotten that benefit from either getting the disease or the vaccine that holds true anyway. But at least in the early days with the earlier variants like Delta and Alpha, the argument could be made. But once Omicron showed up, this was a game changer. And the policy lags the science. A lot of this is very political as well. Yeah, well, um, and, and you know, you, you talked about masking earlier, uh, you know, masking on a plane and then taking it off and then having a drink and then you have to put it back on. Um, what is the current consensus on masking in schools, for example? Uh, does it make sense to impose mask mandates on young kids? Uh, ba- uh, what is the evidence currently saying on mask masks? So very good evidence now showing there's no difference in schools that did and did not mask. And just as we discussed the idea of imposing a vaccine on people who have very low direct risk from the disease and minimal direct benefit from the vaccine, meaning to themselves, similar thing here with the masking. When you make kids mask, you're doing this with the view that the masks are preventing transmission. You're not doing it to protect them from the disease. Yeah, you'll hear all this hullabaloo about long COVID, that you're somehow preventing long COVID. But we know that the masking doesn't really change the rate of infection. So what you're doing is imposing something of a, with a theoretical benefit to stop transmission, say, to the teacher or to other students, to generally a group that's at low risk of bad outcomes, unless you say you have an older teacher who's already vaccinated, by the way, likely, and you're impairing their learning, language development, comprehension, uh, social development. Uh, if, if English is a second language for them, uh, there's a second way to learn a language. It's not just auditory, it's visual, it's facial movement, uh, pronunciation, also you know, ear, hearing development. Like There's a whole bunch of developmental pediatric consequences to continuing 
with this pathway of masking kits. Finally, they now uh, debunked, or I shouldn't say, but now, now uh, dissolved uh, Ontario Science Table had said, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea to keep pushing the masking. But uh, they, I would also say debunked because they were big proponents of masking in schools. And they were also an example of a group that gave contradictory messaging to public health. One big theme I've seen is that there is no leader of the orchestra. You'll have our chief medical officer saying one thing, and then other people deciding they're going to go for the nines and go beyond the exactly. broad advice. Exactly. Maybe- I mean, as is happening with Western, right? Sorry to interrupt, but as is happening with Western, when you have the chief medical officer of health for the province, Dr. Kieran Moore, saying that, look, with, when it comes to younger people, uh, especially when it concerns myocard- the risk of myocarditis, um, you know, it's up to you to make that risk-benefit analysis and come to a decision based on that risk-benefit analysis. Uh, but yet you have uh, these schools like Western and, uh, and other schools essentially going rogue. So it's one thing if it's a private business. They can do whatever they want. I guess you can't tell right. them what to do. It's their own private home. You come to my house and I insist on antigen testing for you, you can't stop me. It's my home. If you want to come to dinner at my place, you have to. This is a publicly funded institution. Mm -hmm. Thousands of students, thousands of faculty, and they can go rogue and contradict our chief medical officer of health. No one accuses them of disinformation. But if I said, hey, maybe we should rethink whether we need so many doses of vaccine, ooh, that's getting into the disinformation area. So this this is the paradox. That's why you will have commentators track towards the most cautious and no one will really question is this too much it's starting now a little bit i saw signs of it with this western university protest but with the truckers protest there was no regard for them they were treated the same way hillary clinton viewed the so-called deplorables deplorables yeah the deplorables this was the equivalent this was our canadian equivalent of the deplorables in our midst not engaging with why they feel the way they do what are the consequences for them? This is this is a new Canadian disease to view people with certain viewpoints as simply deplorable, yeah. ignoring their personal circumstance. The worst thing I have seen in this pandemic has been lower income people who refuse the vaccine, who had been infected and infected before many of us saw it yeah. and being thrown out of their jobs. Yeah, we're very un-Canadian, but perhaps, you know, I've been reflecting on this. Maybe it is part of the Canadian psyche that we just haven't come to terms with. Um, and it, it just took a pandemic, basically, to bring that to the surface. But, uh, you know, but that's um, that's that's that can be debated for sure. Um, and so, Neil, let's go back to natural immunity. And this is a question that I ask every expert that I speak to. For some reason in Canada and the U.S., uh, there's no recognition of natural immunity. Um, and yet in places, uh, in many European countries, for example, that uh, natural immunity is essentially seen as being equivalent to vaccination. Um, and what's more, many of us, as we talked about this earlier, many of us have this hybrid immunity now. We've had two or even three doses and we've gotten Omicron or maybe even the original strain. Um, why do you think that natural immunity is simply not recognized in Canada when, you know, it's as old as time itself? Uh, this is, I mean, what did we do before the advent of vaccination? This is how humankind survived. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I, I, I recall we, uh, at least in Ontario and maybe uh, also in other provinces, hospital workers uh, who had recovered from COVID were fired because they were unvaccinated. Imagine firing a hospital worker in a hospital, um, a, a worker in 
a hospital, a place that should have the science down pat when it comes to things like natural immunity, yet this was happening. Um, and, in, you know, these are people who advocate vaccination, uh, but they don't acknowledge the role of vaccine immunity. So what's going on here? So it's vaccine zealotry. That's what it is. It's literally an undying faith in vaccines being better than natural immunity. But the science as early as January of this year, uh, 2020, I think even late 2021, was starting to show that people who had been previously infected, who had been followed when we had lots of testing available, we were testing everyone who didn't get infected, were better off in terms of a chance of reinfection than those who had been vaccinated but never positive. And Qatar showed it beautifully. And it was shown in an, an MMWR from uh, the US, you know, in California it was shown through a large group of people. Yet the science didn't shift, and no one. And I questioned this in September 2021. I, it's it's in writing what I said. So I'm not just saying this with the benefit of hindsight. I questioned whether this was the right way to go. I wrote a piece in the National Post saying uh, five reasons to or six reasons to rethink vaccine passports. But people, the ban moved on, and what also happened is a lot of organizations wanted to emulate each other. Uh, so if they're doing it, well, why shouldn't we do it? Um, you know, this hospital's doing it. We're going to copy and have a, a similar policy so that people can't shop between hospitals and places of employment. We're going to make it hard for them. It, it, and, and it was, you know, a, a, a way of really irritating people to get them to do it. It was, it was no longer a nudge. It was a stick. Uh, and, and that's what really happened. The other thing is there was this belief that if you acknowledge natural immunity, you would dissuade people from getting the vaccine, that this was a, contradictory message so you'd encourage people to uh, unwittingly get infected or even willingly have a have a COVID party for young kids but this would dissuade people from getting the vaccine the vaccine was the answer so I don't blame the policy of strongly having encouraged the vaccine this Herculean attempt to vaccinate most of the population excellent I'm glad we did it but we couldn't stop. It was like eating popcorn and you know you should stop it. You just keep <laughs> eating it. You finish the whole damn bag. You just can't stop yourself. That's what happened. We got to two doses. We couldn't stop ourselves from going for a third for everyone, not just some. And when I made the comments in November of 2021 saying we need to take stock, applaud ourselves for having got where we got and rethink this booster for everyone, it was criticized on Twitter. Yeah. The, the claim that was made by one expert is, it's a consensus view that we should give third doses to everyone. That's not science. This is 10 people getting together and agreeing. Yeah. That's not science. And the science now shows more and more boosting isn't going to be the answer. The other elephant sitting in the room is we've got this other vaccine coming out now, the Omicron one. Right. The Omicron vaccine is targeted at the original Omicron classic, not the son <laughs> of the son of the son of Omicron, which is out there now. So even that's out of date. You know, it's like giving everyone the iPhone 8, but everyone's got the 13 now. But we offer yeah. the whole population iPhone 8s, but everyone's using the 13. And this virus is a bit like the iPhone. The moment it saturates the population with either immunity due to vaccine or disease, it reinvents itself to get into other people's throats. The goal yeah. of this virus is to be the new iPhone. Well, so what's... we've got 13.1 out there now. Well, what's troubling about this is, you know, I shared a Wall Street Journal story earlier, um, uh, uh, you know, about the FDA authorizing this uh, vaccine. And some of some, some of the details from this story are very disturbing. For example, this uh, Omicron, Omicron specific uh, vaccine has not been tested on humans. 
Um, it's only been tested on mice. And the other thing that comes out of the story is that it's um, it's been, um, you know, all of the usual uh, uh, steps that would be involved in getting the uh, vaccine authorized for use, for example, um, a, a review uh, process that involves uh, experts uh, that who would then authorize the vaccine, they've just completely gotten rid of the rid of that step. Um, and this is not doing much to, um, you know, get people to take the vaccine. I mean, I read the story, I'm triple vaccinated. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking, am, am I comfortable taking this Omicron specific vaccine? And uh, just the details from this are very, very, uh, are not very reassuring, uh, even if you were pro vaccine, but I, you know, I, it was, it was, I'm less worried about the safety side of this as much as, it, uh, yeah. as I'm worried about the practicality and whether it's going to deliver the dividends that it's supposed to deliver. This is mm. what's bothering me. We haven't learned from our mistakes of working with preconceptions and assumptions that right. something will right. deliver these dividends. And we already know we're dealing with a vaccine that is addressing an out of date strain. And who knows what the future holds? the next relative of Omicron, or are we going to suddenly have a big news story about a whole new Greek alphabet virus emerging somewhere? And by the way, the, emer the emergence of these variants is not because people are not vaccinated. That's another great myth out there, that if only more people got the vaccine and more people got the boosters, we could stop variants in their tracks. This is in their tracks. It's nonsense. Nonsense. The variants emerge because there's immunity. The virus is evolving. The virus calls the shots, not the vaccine. Right. So the original alpha variant started in the UK, which was one of the most vaccinated places on earth at that time. But then it happened in South Africa. They said, ah, oh, it's because they didn't get the vaccine in South Africa. But they had massive natural immunity as well. They had had a big round of this in 2020 of the original COVID. And then this Omicron strain vaccine, you know, vaccinated them rather than the vaccine. It didn't get the real vaccine didn't get into their hands. Uh, soon enough. So there's all this mythical talk about how if we had more people vaccinated, we wouldn't have variants. If we had more people vaccinated, the virus would not be multiplying so much in the community and variants wouldn't develop. These are quixotic, you know, lovely beliefs. That's what they are. And they're, well, they're not they've... proven. Well, these were uh, these were expert opinions. I remember uh, actually believing this at that time. Um, you know, you, you mentioned South Africa. I uh, was uh, you know reading this in the context of India uh, that uh, you know because many Indians, including my parents, were unvaccinated. That's the reason that that was why the Delta variant came about. And these were well-known experts who were saying this, and I, I I don't recall them ever being challenged, or maybe they were being challenged, but those challenges challenges just never made it to the, uh, you know, public discourse space. But uh, uh, it, it's quite it's quite something that, you know, I a lot of people do still believe that uh, these variants are emerging because uh, there are unvaccinated people out there. But variants, but but viruses evolve, as you say, They're just like the flu virus, right? Yeah. They, so viruses evolve in response yeah. to population immunity. Yeah. You can think of yourself as a virus. Your goal is to promote yourself. It's to infect more people. Mm -hmm. If every person you reach is blocking you, you have to change your stripes. Make yourself immune invasive. That's what's happening with these Omicron variants. Delta came about because a lot of people had seen COVID classic in India and there was no testing and there's no sophisticated uh, surveillance system, not to the same degree as, as here or in Western uh, developed mm -hmm. countries, whatever, G7 countries. So 
you have a population where there's an invisible outbreak, large number of transmissions, because of course, most of this disease is mild and it goes below the radar. And then they say, hey, it's because people aren't vaccinated, but that's simplistic. Yeah. I, I, we, we, because I remember the UK variant started in a population, population that was immune. And these other variants that we're seeing now, Omicron, are developing right here. They're homegrown problems. And all that traveler testing isn't going to keep it out either, by the way. It's really interesting, but every time we found a variant, we already have it here by the time we actually find it. Yeah. So, so the same thing happened with Omicron. 50 countries had it when we announced this in December of 2021. So, yeah, it was December 2021. My history gets so hard to remember here. Yeah, December 2021, 50 countries had Omicron already. So that traveler testing that we imposed for countries, sub-Saharan African countries was just in, remember the ban we had on travelers coming here yeah. insanity insanity this is a another pandemic fog of war boo-boo yeah and i you know i i hope people look back at this and question their decisions like this was a year plus into this that yeah. we did that and yeah. people were criticizing the who was criticizing it yeah well i mean we we panicked post-vaccination in a way that i would never have imagined uh, we, I, I think i thought we were a little more sensible before the vaccination and i thought the vaccines would put us on this path towards normalcy but in fact what ended up happening is that we panicked even more after vaccination after having this protection yeah. There's also a consummate desire to show us to be different from the U.S., whether it was right or wrong. So mm-hmm. Trump speaks of natural immunity. Oh, <laughs> Trump said it must be wrong. Yeah. Like, you know, a broken clock can be correct twice a day. That's the problem. You have to appraise each statement one by one and really look at whether they're right or wrong. Governor DeSantis, you know, despised by many. Not everything he did with COVID is wrong. Yeah. Because they called it a disaster south of the border. But later on... Where was the disaster? They had population immunity. We were having waves while they weren't. We also know that climate plays a role. We know that subtropical and tropical countries have a different picture. The Mm -hmm. Southern Hemisphere is going to have a big swell now as Australia is having because it's their winter. Also because they held the disease at bay as an island nation with a stringent policy. So you pay now or you pay later. They're paying now. It's a delayed payment program. That's what it is. So all the place, even in Toronto, Places that were hard hit earlier in the first waves of the pandemic were relatively spared more recently because they'd all seen so much disease in Northwest Toronto because you have a low socioeconomic group living in apartment buildings, sharing elevators, sharing spaces, taking public transit to work in front facing jobs, and they can't work from home on their laptop. That's why they got it. Mm. So they're already immune. That's why we didn't have the big wave. They weren't a big news story after the winter of 2021 there was no news story about northwest toronto we always think about where the cameras were not where they aren't yeah absolutely um you mentioned air travel briefly a little while ago air travel remains extremely convoluted um while arriving into canada by air uh both because of these uh of this funky and failure prone arrive can app and also this random testing which you mentioned earlier for everyone even for the vaccinated so why are we doing this and then of course you're asked boilerplate questions like do you have a fever or a cough and and something else you mentioned about the unvaccinated uh you know they they continue to be 
to be treated as second-class citizens as being more dangerous than the vaccinated and are required to quarantine upon return. Uh, what do you make of all of this? I mean, yeah, why the, are we the, still the travel this? policy. I, I don't understand the travel policy. It's, it's, it's amazing that with all of the criticism that this is mm-hmm. received in the media, yeah. that it's still alive. I think there's an element of this that has sunk in costs. They've spent $25 million plus on this app and they want to get it used whether it's useful or not mm-hmm. it'd be one thing if that app prevented you from actually using that whole device when you arrive with your passport and so on if it's spared you that time i can almost forgive them what they're really focusing on is your vaccine certificate and yeah. what dose you got and exactly when and which formulation like this is useless information for border services and then they've got a policy driven by vaccine status in terms of how you have to behave. So if you're unvaccinated, you get a super spanking again, even though you might have even been infected recently. It's not even a good idea to give someone the vaccine right away after an infection. Now, the funny thing is they did come up with a provision for recent infection to exempt people. But, you know, they, they did sort of adapt to that quietly. But if you so if you read the fine print, you can get out of it if you've been infected. You have documentation of infection. But many of us did not document infections. I happen to be fortunate enough working in healthcare. I would know right away if I'm positive, I have access to testing because I don't want to take it to a patient. But many people in the community don't know their status with regards to recent infection. And we find these people when we random test sometimes in outbreaks in hospitals, people have been infected and they didn't even know it. So the weird thing about this ArriveCan policy is it doesn't even consider prior infection openly. It's buried in there if you go deep digging and you can show the customs officer your proof in the last 180 days or or 90 days, whatever date they choose. Uh, And it really assumes that the vaccinated people are bigger transmitters than those who aren't. And then the ridiculous thing you see when you put your passport into the device is they ask you if you have fever or cough. I mean, who's going to say yes, first of all? (laughs) Uh, Just stick your head under the guillotine and say yes. Drop Drop the knife. Like, why would you do that? And then, and then also, symptom screening didn't work. We had symptom screening in long-term care in 2020. If it was so amazing, why did you get all those outbreaks? The problem with this disease is you can have almost no symptoms or no symptoms, and you can unwittingly spread this. We know about choir groups spreading it in, in Washington State in the early days. We know that sing, we know with the fitness studio outbreak in Hamilton, they were all just working out. No symptoms of the index first case. So when you use symptom screening for disease, which can be spread perfectly well without symptoms, this is just theater. Hygiene theater is what this is. And I'm so surprised to see that a government with a whole coitery of experts, Health Canada experts, cannot update its policy. It's shocking. And we will be the last in the world. You go to Europe. it It was refreshing to fly to Europe after so long to see a totally different approach in Portugal, for example. I saw none of this. Even going to the U.S., they're really starting to relax about this. Yeah, and, they, that, and you and you fly to the U.S. You wear a mask, but you switch planes to Chicago, the mask comes off suddenly in the terminal, and it's off on the next flight. Really logical. So we we want to be different from the U.S. We want to show we're more cautious. It makes us feel good. <laughs> there, there must be political points scored by this. There there has to be a political science explanation. Honestly, at this point, I don't see it. I feel like it's actually 
there's going to be a backlash. There is already a backlash. I I I don't really know why they're doubling down on this. Um, and you know, a constant refrain uh, of, uh, that I hear from people returning to Canada, including myself, actually. But I I didn't. You know, I felt that I was coming back to a prison essentially when I flew to Europe back in the spring, and I went to India, and I returned to Canada, and uh, I just really felt like I was returning to a prison. Because everything here was still, we still had the mandates in place at that time. Uh, masking, you know, you had to be masked indoors. Uh, the vaccine mandates were still in place. It was pretty ridiculous. But, um, uh, you know, just a final question for you, Neil. Um, are you optimistic now that we're uh, truly in the end game of this pandemic and we can breathe a sigh of relief um, that life should uh return to some kind of normalcy uh, will we ever get back to a pre to pre-covid times um no i'm optimistic about the disease and of mm-hmm. course we're going to see i'm optimistic that the next variant will make a lot more news than it will really make impact on the healthcare system but it, it seems to be an obsession lately okay yeah uh, however i am not sure our society will change i think this has brought out some really dark aspects of our society we're gonna to have to do a lot of soul searching I think it's going to take many years for the mask to go away. Yeah. I really, I'm not so sure we have an exit strategy there. Uh, I also think it's going to become a political issue. It has been very polarizing. It I've has. never seen a disease become so political. I, one of the worst things I've seen so far in terms of our policy, when I was in Portugal coming home, I saw a somewhat impoverished black man from Angola, being Portuguese speaking, he flew through Lisbon. He was trying to come to Canada for work. And he couldn't get on the plane because he couldn't show proof of vaccine status. And he probably was coming here to work. So that's what our policies did. We mm-hmm. kept poor people away from making a living. There was no serve in Angola. And I saw it with my own eyes. He was livid. He'd spent a lot of his money to come to Lisbon to fly to Canada, and he couldn't. And we allowed that to happen. We didn't even look at testing or a strategy to bring someone like that here if they needed yeah. to for necessity. I don't, we lost our heart. As a yeah. country, yeah. I mean, what, 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 uh, what a time to be alive. I mean, you, you know, as a doctor, you're optimistic about the disease, but you're not optimistic about the policymakers or the people, um, you know, who insist on, uh, you know, being in this constant state of emergency. Well, on that note, Neil, I uh, really appreciate you. Being dark on note, the show. sorry. <laughs> sorry, on that dark note. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, on that dark note, uh, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your insights with me and your. Uh, and our viewers and I hope to have you back here soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you.